Um, I'm going to now turn it over to Dr. Benson, who is going to convene all of the speakers from today. And we'll go into our final segment of the program um, and have a panel discussion. So please continue to put your questions in the Q&A section and uh, look forward to chatting with everyone. Thank you. Well, thank you all. What a great uh, panel of speakers we had uh, this morning or afternoon, wherever you are. And unfortunately, I just learned that Dr. Gandhi will not be able to join us on the panel discussion, which is too bad. I had a number of questions for her. So we will <coughs> see if we can get some answers, maybe from some of our other experts who also know a lot about the topics uh, she was discussing. So uh, you're being joined now by Dr. Sag, Dr. Landovitz, Dr. Smith, and Dr. Spock, and myself to address some of the questions that may not have been answered during the Q&A, but also I prepared some questions myself based on the topics they were discussing that I hope will trigger some interactions among us. So maybe what I'll do is start off with Dr. Sag, since he hasn't talked for a while, and uh, let him start to address some of my uh, pre-prepared questions. Please, if you're a member of the audience, just uh, put your questions in the Q&A, and I'll get to them, too, if uh, you uh, have additional questions related to any of the topics or anything else you might want to ask about. So, Mike, you made a comment toward the end of your discussion about the impact of telemedicine and the issues related to mental health. And I wondered what you thought. You asked the question, are we making things worse or better? Do you think that delivering uh, mental health care by telemedicine or some of these remote access approaches to care is making things better or worse in mental health? What are your thoughts about how to approach that? That's a great question. And my personal feeling is that um, it can work really well. It has to be set up properly. I think the audio and visual is important, especially for the counselor who can watch nonverbal cues and can help the patient work through things. It's certainly better than no counseling at all. Uh, and I think uh, part of what I was saying is that because of the COVID restrictions that we all went through, the isolation led to a lot of uh, exacerbation of mental health conditions. Um, and, and, and I think a lot of people are still suffering from that. So the telemedicine can be helpful in that regard. I, what I guess I was also referring to was just some additional restrictions that we have to work through when using uh, telehealth for especially mental illness that the uh, we have to be very careful about privacy and that type of thing. But when it's done well, uh, I think it can be a real adjunct and perhaps even better than just a regular visit where we are worried about labs and that type of thing. Um, the telehealth visit can be done almost in its entirety without the need for any specimen collection or uh, or lab work, uh, so I think it could be better. Uh, David, I referred to you a little bit in my talk because um, I know you've been doing Project Echo for almost a decade, I guess. Yep. You have a lot of experience. So what are your thoughts as you watch telehealth roll out? And 
maybe even particularly to the question Connie just asked. Yeah, so a couple perspectives on that. Um, the person that started Project, Project Echo, Sanjeev Aurora, and then kind of his first disciple was one of my colleagues, John Scott, who started the whole Echo program. So we were kind of second off the ground to do Echo. So we've been doing it a long time. John Scott, the person that started Echo, started, he was up and ready to go with all the telehealth stuff. So we got off to a very quick start on that because of John. And so I think it's been very, very effective. Um, the one thing that you said earlier that I really tapped into, and my wife's a nurse practitioner, psychiatrist, and this comes up a lot, is that this issue across state lines. Mm. So this really is a huge issue in mental health because, you know, people vacation or they want to go somewhere or they're in a different place. And the ability to still connect with them, they're having, you know, they're off with their mother-in-laws and they have a crisis. And they they to be able to connect by telehealth across state lines with mental health, I think, is super important as well, too. So I, I would agree with everything that you said. And and it's so much better than no care at all. Um, I think people who have mental health and a lot of comorbid medical condition, it's often really helpful to see them in person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a conversation in preparation for my uh, talk today uh, with with the guy who leads things here, Eric Wallace. Yeah. And his, I asked him specifically about licensure, and technically we're breaking the law. Yeah. Uh, whenever we take a call from somebody out of state, uh, we need to get national medical licensure, national PA licensure, national nurse practitioner. It's been all based on states, but I think this is blowing that up and we need some, we need some revisions to uh, how we approach things. Sorry, I guys. think, that, no, I think that's great. Yeah. So I, I think we, we've all had some experience with telemedicine and uh, I'm going to ask Davey uh, about this, not related to provision of primary care, but We've been basically using telehealth, telemedicine, remote access to patients in clinical trials in the setting of COVID. And what do you see emerging for the future? While it was necessary for people with COVID during the peak of the pandemic, do you think there were lessons learned from remote clinical trials that we could incorporate into better access to clinical trials for people with HIV going forward in the future? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, there's a whole lot in that question to unpack, and it's so important, and it's good for us to learn from our mistakes and our, our efforts that we did at the time. Uh, the big one that I have to say is that in the clinical trials, we did a bunch of things like home health, which had some uptake, but not a lot. So trying to keep the person at home and then uh, deliver the medications and the study visits in a home setting, uh, that, that turned out to not work as well as we would like. A big one that did help was increasing transportation back and forth that was safe for people. And uh, that, that turned out to be very useful across the whole, the whole spectrum. The other one is to have as light a touch as trial as possible. If you didn't, if we didn't need an assessment, we didn't put it into the clinical trial. And then these newer trials are, are made to be adapted. So if we learn that a particular swab has no uh, utility in its final outcome, we drop it. And that, that sort of design going forward will be very helpful for HIV trials too, I think. Great. 
I don't want to spend too much time on this one topic, but there's a, a very interesting question from our audience, uh, Mike. What's your opinion about using telemedicine for HIV rapid initiation if you haven't seen the patient in person and they're new to you? Well, I think if if push comes to shove and you can't do it a different way, then it's better to get the treatment started. But, um, gosh, there's so much that goes on in that first visit. And it gets a little bit back to what David Spock said about a lot of comorbidities. This isn't so much a comorbidity issue, but it's a lot of mental trauma and and showing support. And I had yesterday in clinic had what we call a fast track patient who was diagnosed in the ER with a rapid test and then sent over to us within a couple of days. And we spent two and a half hours, maybe three hours with that individual, not just me, of course, but the entire team, social worker, uh, other counselors. And that, that nesting for lack of a better word, that net that they get enveloped in when they come to clinic is very healing. And uh, so I, wouldn't, you know, just dismiss a televisit out of hand, but um, there's to, there's an awful lot of value to the in-person. And again, reading uh, these nonverbal cues, knowing when you you said something that touched a nerve or those types of things, you might pick that up, but it's kind of hard to explore. And finally, they have to be in a safe place. Um, they have to be where no one's potentially overhearing the conversation, and this could go on for an hour or more. Uh, the beauty of being in person in a, in the clinic, it's that is a safe place for them and a haven, and I, I think that's uh, healing in a way. Great. Thank you for that. Um, Rafi, I'm going to move on to you with a couple of questions. So um, you talked a lot about the clinical trials, and you briefly touched on the issue of the oral lead-in with cabotegravir, but I have a couple questions related to, as we're starting to think about implementing cabotegravir in a PrEP setting, do you think the oral lead-in is necessary? And then maybe a corollary question, once you have someone on cabotegravir for PrEP, you briefly mentioned obesity in cabotegravir, but we also know that obesity influences drug absorption and the locations for injections. So in your obese patients, um, are there different recommendations regarding the uh, cabotegravir administration? Uh, thank you. Um, those are great questions. So, um, you know, the whole intent of the oral lead-in, and I say that because remember, you know, if you sort of think, you know, who might benefit the most from an intermittent injectable um, medication, it'd be people who might be challenged by taking an oral pill. It seems sort of antithetical <laughs> to that entire idea to say you're going to obligate um a month or five weeks of, of oral sort of prelude to that. Um, but the intent was this is a novel compound and you wanted to make sure that there wasn't some fulminant hypersensitivity reaction because once you give the injectable product, you can't remove it from the body. You can't dialyze it out. You can't, you know, aspirate it out of the injection site. You're stuck with it. And the tail is so prolonged a year or more 
um, that, you know, I think it was out of an abundance of caution that that was introduced in the study design. Um, I think, you know, given everyone's druthers, it wouldn't have been there. I think what we've learned from 083 um, and 084 at this point are a couple of things. Um, there doesn't seem to be a safety signal for any sort of fulminant hypersensitivity or other toxicity um, that we've seen thus far um, that you'd want to appropriately sieve out with um, with that oral lead-in. And, you know, when I was talking about those C cases, I think it becomes clear that if you have a population who is challenged by taking an oral pill and you ask them to take an oral pill, it can represent a period of liability. And with these delayed diagnostics um, uh, properties of cabotegravir, because it is a potent antiviral, you then run the risk of exposing people to the injectable product that then you can't take away when, during, uh, despite infection that might have occurred during that vulnerability. So it's probably going to be optional is my guess in the, uh, the labeling um, at initial regulatory approval. Do I feel it's necessary? I don't. Um, what I will tell you anecdotally as we've gone to the open label phase of 083 is much to my surprise, we're hearing from sites that a lot of participants who are starting CAB for the first time now that they're being offered a choice, is they want the oral lead-in. Um, and I, I wouldn't have predicted that. And I'll be interested to see if that's consistent as we get more into the study, as we go outside of the U.S. region, where, you know, the regulatory approvals happen in the U.S. quicker than in the non-U.S. region. So I don't have any non-U.S., even anecdotal information about that yet. But I think we're all going to be watching that carefully to see. But my gut is no, it's not necessary. Um, and then I'm sorry, what was the question about? Oh, obese patients. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so the, the two things that we found that correlate with the pharmacokinetics, the length of the tail with cabotegravir are BMI and sex at birth. So um, individuals born female, it's a longer tail and higher BMI patients, it's longer. So actually obese patients, um, it's actually probably protective in terms of prolonging the exposure and giving more forgiveness um, you might wonder if, you know, it's just also more complicated to deliver the injection into a gluteal muscle, depending on where someone carries the fat, which can be very different in different regions and different populations. Um, definitely the pharmacokinetics are different if it's delivered subcutaneously versus intramuscularly. So that could be a factor as well. You just have to make sure you get it in the muscle. Great. Thank you for that. Um going to jump around a little bit here so we have input from all of you, but there are a lot of questions related to vaccines. I'm going to bring up a couple of these. One has to do with data on the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines in people with HIV who've undergone solid organ transplantation or who are on immunosuppressive therapies. Do you know of any data related to these David? So, Connie, there is not any sufficient data on this, at least, and maybe Davey knows or somebody else knows, but when I looked at all of this, even the data just on people with HIV alone, that data is so limited at this point, I don't think we're going to get that data anytime soon. But what we can say is that, so we've got a little bit of data on people with HIV, and now, based on this article that was published in JAMA about a month ago, there is some data in solid organ transplant. And it didn't look great. So this was an article published in JAMA in May. And when they looked at 
mRNA vaccines and solid organ transplants, after one dose, less than 20% of people had a good antibody response. After two doses, less than 50%, and it seemed to be really poor in individuals who were receiving anti-metabolite or like MMF. So in solid organ transplant patients, from what I've seen on the data, unless somebody's seen something different, the vaccine responses did not look good with particularly lower responses in people receiving medications like MMF that were anti-metabolite. So my suspicion would be certainly people, if they have HIV and transplant, they probably would not do as well. But I don't think there's any safety signals from what I've seen. So I'd love to get input uh, from other people as well on this because it's a it's an area where I think we're going to be looking for more data. And maybe we can expand that question to Davy too. Are there yeah. differences in response to the monoclonal antibodies for people with HIV, particularly if they have uh, higher CD or lower CD4 counts or are not suppressed on antiviral therapy? And do we need to be doing anything different for people with HIV with the monoclonal antibodies? Now, all good questions. Uh, there's very, very few data, but the data that we have seen is that people with HIV, whether they're suppressed or not suppressed, do pretty well with these monoclonal antibodies. So at the moment, there's no recommendation to change based on HIV status. Connie, if I can jump in real quick, I, I agree with that, Davey. Uh, coming back to the uh, population of, of solid organ transplants, I, I'm sitting on a data safety monitoring board, and without spilling whatever that studies about, uh, it does involve ICUs, and there are increasing numbers of solid organ transplant recipients who have been fully vaccinated who are in ICUs on ventilators. And uh, I think what that's telling us is sort of what David said, that the immune system's important. I don't think HIV in a, in a well-controlled person where their viral load is undetectable, I, don't, I can't imagine necessarily why uh, all things else being equal, they aren't going to be very much like uh, yeah. non-HIV patients. But anyone who's had a solid organ transplant, because uh, the, the cellular immunity is understated in terms of everyone's focusing on antibody responses, but the cellular immune response is very important in protection against COVID. And we know that also anecdotally through uh, people who've gotten rituximab and I haven't seen a single one of those individuals who mounted much of an antibody response. Yet, the protection seems to be okay so far and seems to be a little bit better than the solid organ folks. That's very preliminary information, but I think we're all concerned about the rituxan people. What's the take-home point? I think as, as all of us counsel patients who are on rituxan, solid organ, despite whatever the mask orders are saying, they're going out in public, they should be wearing a mask, I think. Yeah, I think all of us would agree with that, Mike. And I think we've seen a number of manuscripts published now of just people with solid organ transplant or who have B-cell or T-cell immune dysfunctions having more severe disease and prolonged viral shedding, prolonged um lack of immune response to a native infection with COVID. So I think that just gives us a lot of uh, pause in how we make recommendations for further management. Um, So let's go back to David again for a couple more questions related to vaccines. Um, You didn't have time to really address this, but meningococcal vaccination is 
in the forefront in people's minds, probably because we're see, being bombarded with television ads about getting your kid vaccinated. But uh, what is your guidance for uh, giving meningococcal vaccine to people with HIV? And uh, some of the guidance recommends two doses of meningococcal vaccine with a booster every five years for people with HIV. So exactly. what are your thoughts on that? Right. So I think there's sort of three points with the meningococcal vaccines. One is they're conjugate vaccines that are ACYW135. Then there's the B vaccine. And then there's this issue about potential cross protection with meningococcal B vaccine and gonococcus. Um, and I think that's some interesting data that is not really, you know, uh, sort of in any kind of guidance, but it's just interesting speculative data. So first of all, for the conjugate vaccine, exactly as you said, Connie, two doses, um, eight to 12 weeks apart, followed by the recommendation is every five years. So a lot of people get this confused because they think, you know, pneumococcus is every five years and meningococcus is one, two shots, and then you're done. I will say that in our clinic, and I think a lot of people, given the fairly low um, incidence of invasive meningococcal disease, meningococcal meningitis. A lot of clinics, I don't think adhere to that rigorously and give meningococcal vaccine every five years. But that is currently an ACIP and 2021 recommendations. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Meningococcal B is considered that. So that's a solid recommendation in HIV. Meningococcal B is really only recommended as optional and people who have other indications to receive it. So that's really no different than the general population. The, the third point is that there have been some data, a lot of this came um, from New Zealand years ago, suggesting that there were um, some cross-protection that if people got meningococcal B vaccine, that there were lower community and, and countrywide rates of, of gonorrhea. Now, there's no one that's recommending this to, to as a vaccine for gonorrhea, but I think what it does tell us is that I think with the right development, you probably could dial up and develop a gonococcal vaccine at some point. And as been alluded to with all the issues of resistance and gonorrhea, this would be something that I think would be a holy grail to have in the next five to 10 years, uh, given sort of where we're headed. And now with the new ceftriaxone dose up to 500 milligrams for gonococcus, it's, you know, it'd be really attractive to have a gonorrhea vaccine in the future. Now, I wonder out loud, though, David, if, if people are getting recurrent bouts of gonorrhea, that uh, the natural infection doesn't seem to produce much immunity. That's yeah, pretty- true. Yep, yeah, I think so that's true. Kind of along those lines, since all of you are uh, experts in this area as well, Um, We know that we've seen a dramatic reduction in respiratory viral illnesses during the pandemic other than COVID. And obviously people have thought that's related to social distancing and masking. As we move back into a more normal sphere with no longer keeping social distancing and masking for people with who are vaccinated against COVID, what are what's going to be your approach to influenza vaccine and what we might see in the fall? And what are you going to tell people about getting influenza vaccine together with COVID vaccines in the fall if it looks like we need to have boosted boosted doses for COVID vaccines? Any speculation on any of your parts? My I have a 
I think we should be a little opportunistic here. There's lots of uh, discussion out there about getting a vaccine, getting a vaccine, and we've seen a spike of, uh, a few studies have seen a spike in people actually interested in vaccines in general, including the flu vaccine. So it might be a really good opportunity to get those few patients. We all have them. We all know who they are. Uh, who never give the flu vaccine after we've talked to them. <laughs> uh, this will be the time to like, hey, you're getting COVID vaccine now. Here's a flu vaccine. So um, that spillover effect, I think uh, we should we should take advantage of. Great. I also wonder out loud. I'm a little bit facetious, but how much we should be employing masks? Uh, there was hardly any influenza this past year. RSV in kids was almost negligible compared to what it usually is. And just speaking first person, I didn't have a single cold the entire winter, which yeah. is unusual. And I think it's these guys. Yeah. Indeed. I, uh, I also look better in a mask. So it, I, <laughs> I was going to say that, Davey. But yeah, I was say that, Davey. <laughs> so so uh, I, just would, I just would add in, you know, there is some data combining influenza and pneumococcal vaccine and simultaneously giving those. And that data looked like it was very safe. It did not have any impact on immunogenicity. So I think your question about giving those two on the same visit, we have at least a little bit of extrapolation with pneumococcus. So I wouldn't hesitate. Um, unless somebody came up with some other. The second thing is I, I, that I really would like to see people get a new uh, influenza vaccine is I think the biggest problem is going to be is when we take our mask off and we get everybody together again, everybody's going to be coming in with a cough and a cold and a fever. And what are you going to do? You're going to have to basically run everybody through the mill and COVID test them. And I think that's going to be a big burden on the healthcare system. And, and, and you know, for, for individuals as well, too, that's going to be uh, problematic. It'll be a bio firestorm. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good point. Uh, for, uh, you know, and, and I think, um, I know I'm probably belaboring this point, but it feels like we're, at least with some of these vaccines, David, that we're kind of leaning toward this, you know, with what you talked about with hepatitis A and hepatitis B, meningococcal, Zostavax, kind of individualizing vaccine administration when, you know, how are we going to get people to come back and get all of these different vaccines unless we can give them during the same visit or close to the same visit without having to stretch them all multiple times? I think we're missing things by all of these staggered doses and differing intervals. Um so what, what are your thoughts about whether we really could give multiple vaccines on the same visit? So I, I think in general, that's probably an okay thing to do. But there, there are a few caveats, I would say. Like in my own experience, I've seen some pretty nasty reaction to the Zoster vaccine. So I, I personally would be a little hesitant about giving Zoster vaccine and COVID vaccine on the same day. And, and until we maybe get a little more experience with the Heplosab B and that CPG 1018 adjuvant, I, I just see these vaccines that have these really potent adjuvants would make me the most concerned giving multiple of those simultaneously. But for example, polysaccharide vaccines and Tdap and lining up about three or four of those and giving them, I don't have a, a concern about those, but um, I, I think you're asking a great question. Now the pediatricians seem to figure all this out and they've seemed to be able to get a lot of these combined in and figured out how to do these. And so it would be a great thing for somebody to study 
because it wouldn't be that hard to do. The last thing is, is if you simplified some of these and you got, for example, things like hep B that were one month apart and you got, you know, your hep A vaccines are one month apart. You know, you, you there, there are different ways that you could do this, I think, to some maybe hepatitis A is not a good example of that. But meningococcus, say, for example, with Heplosab B, both of those, and even that, I think you'd probably space those out more, 8 to 12 weeks, even if you were doing that. But but you could start to imagine you could come up with some practical combinations. Yeah. Well, I like I, your question. It's great. I think that would be a good thing for somebody to do for yeah. people in primary care. So, yeah. Rafi, I'm going to come back to you and put you on the spot a little bit. So, um and this goes in, we'll go into a general question for everyone. Um, for the people that you talked about with these delayed um, diagnoses during the 083 trial, how often were people tested at the sites during the clinical trial? And if they were tested more frequently, would they have picked up these delayed diagnoses patients earlier? And again, kind of going back to my question during your Q&A, about what implications this has for recommendations in clinical care once cabotegravir is implemented. How often should we be testing people on PrEP um, if you're worried about a, a delayed diagnosis? Yeah, you know, in the 083 study, people were being tested on average once a month. Um, so the, they were being tested at every injection event, which was every two months, and also at a safety visit um, in between, which was supposed to be two weeks after the injection, but sometimes was delayed and really ran, you know, ran the gamut of that entire span between the injection visits. So people were tested two times every eight weeks, um, which is an average of once a month. Um, so I don't think more frequent testing is going to be the answer. Um, okay. I'm not sure what the ultimate... Um, uh, you know, sort of shakeout is going to be for cost efficacy and, um, and sort of optimizing how things are going to go. Um, but like I mentioned, you know, the draft CDC guidance that's out for public comment right now is recommending viral load testing every two months. Um, they don't, the current, um, first draft of this guidance doesn't comment on the use of more conventional antigen antibody tests as well. In my mind, um, if you're going to do that, it's a flip the algorithm sort of situation where you'd start with the viral load. And then if, you know, if you would also then run or try to get, like I was saying, an orthogonal different modality to confirm that, or at least repeat it if it's, if it's positive, but I do think it's going to be, it's going to be complicated. Um, and we're going to need more sensitive and specific diagnostics and ideally point of care, um, to be able to answer, you know, how to do this well. Bernie Branson did send me an email, um, after my talk saying that the, the quantitative aptima test that I was alluding to actually has gained FDA clearance for both diagnostics and monitoring. And that has a lower limit of quantitation of 13 copies per milliliter. Um, and so, you know, depending on that rollout and how widely available and inexpensive and supply chain, et cetera, that, that is going to be, that, that could be a really powerful tool um, for monitoring um, infection uh, and diagnostics in, in these long acting prep settings. 
Great. Thank you. Um, Connie, I had a question for Rafi and follow up for that. So I, I'm fascinated by this recommendation. Do you think that is going to spill over with using, you know, RNA testing into sort of general prep with monitoring or screening prior to, cause that's going to be a game changer if it does. Yeah, David, I don't, I don't think so because I mean, you know, the, the data from the clinical trials suggests that, you know, TDF, FTC, can delay diagnostics, but it's not nowhere near on this order of magnitude. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, the, the issue, of course, with TDF FTC prep is basically it's a case report. Um, if it fails in the context of it being taken as prescribed, right? Um, so the overall majority of the acquisitions that occur in tenofovir based prep use is when people aren't taking it. So your diagnostics aren't going to be confounded yeah. in most cases. The thing that's most vexing about what we currently know about cabotegravir is we have, you know, these four cases in, in 083 and, and, um, two cases in 084, where as far as we know, these injections were on time and the PK mm-hmm. was good. Um, and the infection occurred anyway. And I would posit that, um, it's very difficult to do correlates of protection when you have such delays in the testing um reactivity because you're not sure what the time point was of the exposure that you're trying to figure out what was different in that moment right because you're not catching the event until very late um you know if i were a betting man um i would say it's because cabotegravir gets into rectal tissues at about eight to ten percent of its plasma um levels and vet cervical vaginal tissues about twenty percent and that it's differential kinetics and partitioning into the tissues, particularly early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but that's com- pure, pure conjecture on my part. Thanks. Rafi, do you think that matters? I, I don't know, Mike. I fear it may, particularly early on, you know, when you're sort of building up levels, if the kinetics are slower and then they are low, could, are you at risk for then getting a compartmentalized infection? that's controlled because of great plasma activity, but then ultimately is going to select for a resistant variant that then going to sort of disseminate. And, you know, there's at least one case in the literature, the Dutch case that has gotten a lot of attention of that happening with TDF FTC or proposed to have been happening with TDF FTC. So, you know, there's at least a plausible, um, you know, so precedent for that pathophysiology, but we don't know. And again, pure conjecture on my part. We need more data. Great. So I have another question for all of you. Maybe this will stimulate some additional comments from our audience, too. What has been your experience with people with HIV and sort of long-haul COVID? Have you seen a lot of people with persistent, prolonged symptoms due to COVID after they recover? Some. Frankly, I see more in the non-HIV population as a rule. It's very anecdotal, but uh, been seeing a fair number of people with long COVID. Uh, and like uh, Monica presented, uh, there doesn't seem to be much differential between incident COVID infection of HIV versus non-HIV. I know there's varying data, but I think that's probably accurate. But interestingly, uh, I haven't seen that. I don't know about others. What have you guys seen? 
Yeah, we. My anecdote is the same as yours. We have a lot of people with uh, long COVID um, who don't have HIV. We have a long COVID clinic, and uh, very few. Uh, like I, I only know of two people who are in that clinic who have HIV. That everybody else's experience too. Yep. 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 So, do you think that's a real phenomenon? That there's something about people with HIV that prevents some of the persistent symptoms. And this goes back to a couple of questions people had about tenofovir or some of the antiretroviral therapy drugs, or uh, maybe being somewhat protective toward developing more severe symptoms. It's intriguing. Um, First of all, let's back up about five steps and say COVID long COVID is a real thing, but, what in the world is it, and what <laughs> is it, right? I mean, and and what's this whole deal with you get vaccinated, and not, not everyone, of course, but several people have dramatic turnarounds, and so you know it goes back to what Maury Shamblin always used to say about metabolic syndrome and HIV. Is quoting Stephen Stills, "There's something happening here, what <laughs> ain't exactly clear." Okay. Well, I guess I'm not going to stimulate much controversial discussion here. Um, But uh, I would hope that we'll have some emerging data on this topic. In fairness to your point, one of the thoughts is that there's some residual low-level either expression of viral protein or even low-grade replication that's been proposed in the gut um, we know that remdesivir is a drug that is very similar in structure as tenofovir. Um, and so possibly uh, there could be some protection against some degree of either protein expression or replication that tenofovir does. So it's, it, it, it you know, there's some very hand wavy uh, <laughs> rationale. That was a good one, Mike. That was a good one. <laughs> Okay, um, Rafi, there's a question from the audience about the cabotegravir tail. And again, as we're planning on how we might bring this into clinical practice, if the patient wants to go off cabotegravir and move on to TDF or TAF-related PrEP, is there anything specific you need to do about the cabotegravir tra- tail? Yeah, thanks for, for that question. Um the answer is no. I mean, the way I think about it um, is, you know, if you're going off cabotegravir um, and you're still um, at increased risk for HIV acquisition, you need a, a, another highly active prevention modality, whether that's TDF-based PrEP or TAF-based PrEP or something else. Um, uh, if you're at risk, you just need another PrEP modality. You don't need to do anything about the long cab tail in that setting because you have got another preventive agent that you're going to be leveraging. There aren't a lot of drug-drug interactions you need to worry about. Um, you know, I think for women of childbearing potential, there was originally a lot of concern about the long tail and potential exposure during pregnancy, particularly when we were very concerned about neural tube defects associated with dolutegravir um, a couple of years ago. And now, you know, that the accumulated data has 
sort of calmed our our anxieties about that um, significantly. So it's become less of an issue. And the 084 study is actually going to allow um, women who, um, as Sinead Delaney Moretlaway, the chair of that protocol, likes to say, fall pregnant um, while on cabotegravir, they're going to allow be allowed to continue dosing. Um, so we're going to get more experience with that. But there's nothing else that needs to be done. You can transition directly to an oral agent. Okay. There are several comments uh, in the Q&A about obesity, COVID, and mental health issues. So we've all seen or heard about the phenomenon of the COVID-15. So people at home um, experiencing the social isolation of lockdown using food to <laughs> assuage their anxiety. So have you noticed more weight gain in your HIV population um, due to COVID mental health related issues? And if so, is do you have any tips on uh, encouraging weight loss or trying to abrogate the weight gain associated with COVID or mental health issues during the pandemic? So you started that topic, Mike. So why don't you take a shot at those questions? Sure. Um, well, again, ironically, just yesterday in clinic, a, um, a professor here who uh, sees us um, had gained 15 pounds during the COVID outbreak. And I explored why and um, said just sitting at home and eating. Um, it's pretty simple. And the only, unfortunately, we don't have any magic wands for obesity. Um, it, it always boils down to diet and exercise, but at least the exercise I think can be helpful for mental health. Just simple things like daily walks, um, that, that type of thing. But these things are easy to say and hard for people to implement. Otherwise we wouldn't have such an issue in our country, uh, with, with, uh, obesity, but, uh, I don't have a great solution, um, you know, was it because this guy's on an integrase inhibitor in TAF? Maybe, but he's been on it for a while. I think COVID had something to do with it. <laughs> One of the audience members comments, you have the COVID-15 plus the INSTI 10 or 15, and pretty soon you've got an HIV patient who's uh, markedly heavier than they were at the a year ago. And so we're we are going to have to do something about that, I think. Um, so let me just go around the group and ask if there are any uh, questions you all have of each other or any final comments you want to make as we head toward the last three minutes of our panel discussion here. Let's start with uh, Davey. Uh, just thank you, Connie. The one thing I'd follow up with in terms of the exercise and mental health is what I have noticed is to try to start uh, with something that could be successful with my patients, like just walking a little bit every day in the morning or something like that, and then start to build on it. Uh, I've noticed that sometimes if you if I set goals that are too far, they just never get started. So that's probably my my one advice for that. How about you, David? Any last minute comments you want to make related to your topic? I think the only thing I would say is that clearly I think vaccines were one of the first things that got lost in all the shuffle of COVID. And 
now that we are getting back to everything being more normal, not normal, but more normal, I think this is a great opportunity to re-engage our patients about immunizations. And then just to remind everybody, if somebody is delayed on when they're supposed to get their vaccine, it's fine to just pick up where you've left off. And that way you don't have to be going, giving them a bunch of extra shots. So if they're six months late on their last dose of their hepatitis B, just give it. They're late on their pneumococcal vaccine. They'll probably just give it at the time they come in and see you. So I think that would be the main point I would leave people with. Great. And Rafi, how about any last minute comments from you? Yeah, thank you. The the one thing I would just say is um, I don't know if anyone in the audience has tried to um, prescribe long-acting injectable treatment for people living with HIV. Um, in its initial rollout, it's been really cumbersome, complicated, frustrating for providers and patients. And so um, I think we've got a lot of work to do for preparedness um, if we're going to be able to have population level benefits um, of these injectable products. So we get some systems things to figure out. So now is the time for us all to start thinking together about what we're going to need to be successful with this product, because we're probably going to have a regulatory approval before the end of this calendar year or early next year. So we don't really have that much time, but it's exciting, but lots to figure out. Mm-hmm. And Mike, you get the last word. Actually, yeah. I really get the last yeah, yeah, but word. I can say that I think I touched, We were through all this, we've been able to touch on the major things I wanted to bring out on telemedicine. But I will say a tip of the hat to you guys for a great organization for today. And I especially like this wrap-up panel discussion because uh, there often are questions that don't get answered during the original presentations. And this is a great way to wrap up. So thanks for putting that together. Great. So thank you. I agree. I like the the idea and I hope our our audience has liked it as well. If there are any questions that emerged that we didn't get to, I know there were a couple of questions about hepatitis B treatment that we didn't get to since we weren't really covering that topic. Maybe uh, Dr. Spock or, or Smith could get back to you guys in writing about the hepatitis treatment questions that you might have. Um, so I think we are right on time. And uh, the one last comment from the audience, it would be helpful to have an echo prep HIV med injectable for our clinics. So I think uh, people are thinking along the same page that all of you are. We really need to figure out how to prepare both our patients and our clinics for dealing with these injectable long-acting agents. So why don't we close there and uh, we'll put up the final slides for closing comments. Thank you all for a great symposium, great talks, 